Welcome to the Picture Books to Gang podcast. I'm Allie. I'm Corey. I'm Kelly, and we are the Picture Books to Gang. We invite you to join us here every other week while we discuss amazing books and issues in children's literature, as well as early literacy, education, and parenting as it relates to reading. We can't wait to dig in deep and get nerdy about picture books with you. Hello, and welcome back to the Picture Books to Gang podcast. My name is Corey, and I'm joined by my two ethereal fairy godmother co-hosts, Kelly and Allie. Hello, I am Allie. Thank you, Corey. This is Kelly. We have a bit of a confession. We wanted this week's episode to be easy and in our true form of did the whole group project ourselves fashion, we chose a topic far more complex than we could have ever imagined. Fairy tales. Yeah, we initially wanted to actually touch on this in our last episode about gender and stereotypes, and then we found quickly that it might be too big of a topic to just have as an aside. So then we thought, nah, we'll just bang off a little episode about this. And then, wow, did we realize this is massive and that people are actually scholars in the history of fairy tales. And the truth of them is deep, nuanced, and layered. And because of the extreme size of this topic, we are choosing to focus on European fairy tales. Uh, there are many other fairy and folk tales that span other cultures and regions, but we're going to focus on the traditional European fairy tales, which were mostly written down by the Brothers Grimm, Charles Perrault, and Hans Christian Andersen. So let me set the groundwork for this episode in the form of a fairy tale. <laughs> <laughs> so once upon a time, in a land far, far away, there were two brothers, Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm, who were deeply interested in folktales. So interested, in fact, that they decided to set about collecting these traditional stories from the people, many of them women, who told them. These were stories that had been passed down from mouth to ear for centuries, perhaps longer. The brothers were academic gentlemen, philologists, interested in preservation. But when their books, freshly printed and bound, went out into the world, they were surprised to discover that there was an enormous interest in purchasing these stories for children. And so they started changing them. Now, Corey and Kelly don't find traditional fairy tales all that interesting. As the creators of Inclusive Storytime and The Tiny Activist, they have no interest in perpetuating rigid, oppressive, moralistic lessons. And their interest in picture books is in its capacity and power to revolutionize, radicalize, and to destroy the very boundaries that fairy tales create, enforce, and internalize. Or at least they like to learn about cool stuff like swamps. Fairy tales don't provide any of those things. I, Ellie, on the other hand, love fairy tales, not because of the ominous warnings to behave, although I would prefer if my children had a healthy fear of wandering around in the woods alone, like Osumi, right? But for me, <laughs> I think there's just, there's more to the core of a fairy tale than the moralist trappings that were added by the Brothers Grimm and later Disney Studios. Fairy tales are all pieces of the story of human nature and human relationships, which are inextricably linked. And the reason we see pieces of fairy tales in the best books and movies out there is because they're universal and timeless experiences. But alas, we must dig deeper and we could never have guessed what we would have found. Ooh, ominous. Mm. But yeah, this whole thing got complicated fast because we were definitely heavily influenced by our present day knowledge of fairy tales and their misogyny. 
And for me, understanding how much the Brothers Grimm, Wilhelm, and Jacob heavily edited and revised the traditional oral stories through each edition of their book, bending to fit them in their increasingly rigid Christian patriarchal values. Yeah, and I definitely did a bit of a whatever, these are trash and I want no involvement in them and my interest was a little bit thin. I thought we were just going to get to rant about princesses and the patriarchy for 30 minutes and call it a day until, quite specifically, Ally brought up Hans Christian Andersen and the Little Mermaid, which we all immediately think of the Disneyfied version of that story, where the mermaid literally gives up her voice for a man, and then on the flip side, the man only falls in love with a woman who literally cannot speak for herself. The Disney version is a hot, hot, hot mess when looked at from a feminist perspective, but Ale completely blew my mind with what she found out about the original. Yeah, I love the internet. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I went into, you know, my research mode and spent many, many late nights researching all of this, and it got deep real fast. And Hans Christian Andersen, who was a Danish gentleman writing in the early 19th century, um, wrote the original version of The Little Mermaid, published it in 1837, along with the collection of fairy tales. So the original Little Mermaid is very far removed from the modern Disney version that you probably know. The Little Mermaid saves the prince, falls in love, then goes to the sea witch to get legs. The sea witch gives her legs in exchange for her voice, yes, but also every step the Little Mermaid then takes is excruciating, torturous pain. And if the prince doesn't fall in love with her, she will turn to sea phone and just be nothing. So she goes, she finds the prince, he treats her like a beautiful pet, basically, and then he falls in love with another princess, who he thinks was the person who saved him originally. For whatever reason, the Little Mermaid doesn't seem to bear them any ill will. And in the end of the story, her mermaid sisters go to the sea witch and get her a magical knife and says, if you can kill the prince in his sleep on his wedding night, you will get to come back home and live your long mermaid life. But she can't do it. So she throws herself into the sea to die and face oblivion. But instead, she's rewarded by becoming an invisible winged creature who will one day sort of go to heaven. Anyways, there's a lot happening here. And the key piece really is understanding three things about Hans Christian Andersen that you didn't know. One, that he was deeply religious. Two, he was very gay. And three, at the time of writing this, he was suffering a broken heart over the love of his life, Edward, marrying a woman. So like cue my brain exploding at this point because clearly he wrote this story about himself and using his feelings of quote feminine love towards Edward and personified himself as the female mermaid and used the story to work out his feelings of jealousy and betrayal but like ultimately come to a place of acceptance of Edward, his prince's choice which is a surprisingly healthy and mature moral compared to most fairy tales. Even if the end is kind of weird, with the mermaid becoming an invisible creature, it really is exploring his belief that by accepting his fate and choosing the right thing, like the mermaid did in the end, his soul would be saved. Because another piece here is about how the mermaid, aka gay men, did not have souls, and when they died, would become nothing. And so clearly he was really struggling with all of that. This this poor man was really struggling. Yeah, it's actually super heartbreaking to think about it that way. And there is 
a lot more that comes into sharper focus about some of the original fairy tales you can't see that i'm using air quotes here that hans christian anderson wrote because he was stuck in this cycle of repressed identity and sort of retreated into writing these fairy tales for children to work through his feelings so he also wrote the ugly duckling which is said that he wrote it to represent being gay and I do actually kind of wonder what the transformation is supposed to represent. Possibly that when he grew up, he found people like him, other LGBTQ people. He found his community. I'm not really sure. Another one of his stories is Thumbelina, which is, if you don't know, but a girl born the size of a thumb who doesn't fit in anywhere and spends the whole story trying to avoid marrying moles and frogs and things that she has no interest in. So these stories were definitely a way for him to express his feelings and disguise them in a manner that was acceptable for the time he lived. And it makes it just extra offensive to me that his stories were redone later to reinforce heteronormative ideals that weren't supposed to be there to begin with and to also for some reason give witches a really bad rap like in the original story of the little mermaid the witch didn't do anything they just made a deal that was it deal made but disney really flippin' hates witches but anyways that's the thing about fairy tales they get redone to suit the time the place and the person doing the makeover disney really did have a bone to pick with witches didn't he <laughs> sure did <laughs> So Hans Christian Andersen aside, the real elephant in the room is those Darren Brothers Grimm. So we should really get back to them. This is where I start getting angry about the patriarchy, isn't it? I mean, you can always be angry about the patriarchy. I am. Legit. Yes. So yeah, this is where we all start getting angry about the patriarchy. So... These Grimm guys were kind of collectors of oral stories. They were writing them down in the name of cultural and language preservation, German linguistics and culture specifically. But the history of each individual story has many iterations that span centuries and cultures before they wrote them down, from ancient Greece to China and beyond. And I think what's not known about this history really is exactly how not for children these stories were. People are like, yeah, they were a little harsher back then. But the truth is, a lot of these stories were ex either extremely racy parlor stories told to aristocrats at parties, many of which were orgies. In time, people had orgies. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that's a different historical talk. But yes, and let's not sugarcoat this here. These were sometimes just theatrically spoken word porn, like Little Red Riding Hood seriously yeah that's yeah so <laughs> the other non-porn stories were just straight up stolen from women who had been telling these stories in their communities for generations to other audiences which again was not specifically children usually they were evening stories for other adults even though most of the writers of the fairy tales that we know today were historically men because you know female Women were still an enormous part of oral storytelling traditions and truly a huge part of who shaped the original stories before they got to all the men that wrote them down. Right. But like, like a lot of history, once men come and start writing things down, they start just throwing their name on everything and changing it up, you know? That's and right. so <laughs> the Brothers Grimm, they did that. They started collecting these stories. They published them. And there were over, like over 100 stories in their first couple of editions of the fairy tales, which were explicitly released for adults, not children or general audiences. But then there was an interest in people purchasing them for children. And so they sold out their intentions 
big old sellouts, right? <laughs> so they turned them into quote-unquote family-friendly stories, aka Christian, misogynist, moralist tales, because the point of children's stories then was to impart lessons. The original stories didn't have the same value system or purpose. Some of the original ones in those first couple of editions were incredibly horrific. One was about children butchering a pig together and then eventually one of the children slits their little brother's throat? Like, what is this? It's difficult to even understand how a collection of stories that included things like that got morphed into some of the most treasured and repeated children's stories of our culture. Oh my god, yeah, when I read that one about the kids killing each other and then the mom kills the other kid and it was like, oh my gosh, what is happening here? Why is it being written? written down. <sighs> yeah, it's just slightly horrifying. But somehow, they have morphed into this pervasive collection of children's stories, and each change really had a huge effect on narratives that are so embedded into our culture. Yes, like I was really surprised when we all read the sta- wicked stepmothers that appear in fairy tales. Like in most of the stories, those were originally biological mothers, um, and the brothers, brothers Grimm thought it was too unchristian, so they basically invented this wicked stepmother trope. There is another layer to that, though, which is, has a lot to do with men remarrying after their wives died in childbirth, and then an invented storyline of them jockeying for inheritance with the children of the first wife. So that's a whole other thing. It was a complicated time. <laughs> I also have to mention, if you're wondering where we learned about all of these changes, we ended up going down a whole bunch of internet rabbit holes, one of them on top of a bunch of other interesting articles and texts that we'll link in the show notes, was an absolutely amazing YouTuber named Jen Campbell, who does an entire series of videos delving into the individual history of each fairy tale, and they're absolutely fascinating. Heck yes, they were. I was up to like 3 a.m. watching her videos like multiple days in a row and they were mind-boggling like really made me think about absolutely everything in a new light she is just amazing please go subscribe please like right now i mean after you've listened to this (laughs) (laughs) yes absolutely finish with us first (laughs) so lots of new information there and she talks about a lot the history of a lot of stories including like peter pan and stuff like that we're not we're not even getting into that because that's not really a fairy tale but i never thought fairy tales would be quite as interesting as they really are the old histories of fairy tales but the next part of the fairy tale journey is the one that i only mention with extreme reluctance and it's the influence of disney yes unfortunately disney definitely needs to be part of this conversation because even though they produce movies and this is a book podcast the disney version of these stories have had such a huge effect on how these stories are retold in books at this point and disney has definitely done an even bigger round of revisions and sanitized twisted and co-opt fairy tales to even another plateau that has turned them into something even more anti-feminist than they were at the hands of the Brothers Grimm, which is hard to believe because that was the 1800s. Okay, I love Disney movies and I'm, I'm not sorry. Just putting that out there, you know? And I could talk about Disney all day. I love them as a passive viewer as a child and then as an adult, I love them for the depth of their connection with modern society's neuroses and internalized messed up issues. It's like poking around inside some kind of communal brain and that brain is wrapped in 
beautiful animation with like soundtracks and I could just talk about it for hours. You sure could. <laughs> and you have. But today you have to give us the tweet length version. <laughs> okay, all right, fine. But I'm talking to you about this later, that's for sure. You're not yeah. getting out of that. <laughs> I, I don't doubt it for a second. <laughs> all right, so here's the Twitter version of it for today. Disney took all the hard parts, the sketchy parts out of the Grimm's fairy tales and smoothed them down and gave them all happy endings which I love, by the way. I love happy endings. And then they added the visual elements, which is actually where most of the inferred, really problematic messaging is. And those messages, you know, they bring in the issues of, you know, racism, body shaming, superficiality, etc. And of course, everything is very heteronormative, always. And this is all wrapped up in the whole Disney princess canon of movies. <sighs> Princesses. Mm. So... I'm not a fan, and I think that's because I was a very rough-and-tumble, always-outside-in-the-mud type child and never saw myself in any of these stories, despite the fact that I am white and naturally blonde. I've just never found fairy tales particularly inviting, probably because the princesses never looked like they were having any fun. They were dressed fancy, and they liked boys. And while I might have had a box full of thrift store dress-up clothes, I never wanted to marry a prince. I wanted to just befriend animals and build forts. Same. <laughs> and, like, I felt intense pressure to, like, princesses and these sort of Disney-fied pink and girly things. And my sister really liked it. But it was just never truly ever me. And I am a pretty feminine cis woman, even today as an adult. And But I'm just very uncomfortable putting myself in a princess adjacent box and like Disney was huge in my house <laughs> we had all the movies it we watched them all the time which I know wasn't the case at all in your house uh Corey no my mom was sending me outside to play on our farm before I could ever watch Sleeping Beauty or anything <laughs> like that <laughs> she's too wise your mom um but shout out anyway. Jancy Jancy <laughs> Anyway, my point is also that I didn't just, I just didn't see myself, like Corey, I just didn't see myself reflected back. And because I thought that all fairy, that's all that fairy tales were, I didn't see anything beyond that. See, so I'm actually not that feminine in the way I dress. I wear almost exclusively men's clothing because pockets. Everything with pockets is better. It's just true. And, uh, and despite that, I love Disney princesses. The singing, actually, it's mostly the singing, I think. And, and just everything in the world is beautiful and happy and magical. And these old Disney princess movies are products of whatever era they're, they're made. Um, they're all very typical of the white middle class ideals of that time. So that comes with a lot of problems. And I'm, I'm not negating that. But I think the aspect of intense femininity embodied in the whole film genre, which is just is the kind of what this princess thing is about, isn't inherently problematic. There's nothing wrong with liking stuff that's just frivolous and beautiful, boys or girls. And it's okay to just like things that are pretty and happy and I stand by it. That's your hot take and sure you are is. allowed to stick to it. <laughs> and I support that you have your position. Thank and you. <laughs> And to a degree, you know, I do see that the more modern Disney movies aren't focusing on the damsel in distress thing as much anymore. 
They are moving forward with much more compelling heroines. I just think that it's something that's still lacking in the children's literature end of things, books that feature princesses. Except when you get into the fractured fairy tale genre, which I personally think is where things start to get pretty interesting. Ooh, yes. Like Maiden and Princess by Daniel Hack. I really love this rewrite of a sort of Cinderella story for so many reasons, because this book is everything I want in a fairy tale. I will give you a brief synopsis because I'm excited. (laughs) A maiden that is renowned in battle receives an invitation from the Black Royal family to attend a ball so that the prince can find a bride. The maiden actually knows the prince, but only has feelings for him like a brother. But her mom is like, you should go and have a good time anyway. And she's like, ah, fine. So she leaves her cool, tiny pet dragon at home and she goes to the ball. In the end, it's the princess, the prince's sister, rather than the prince, that falls for the maiden. It's so good, and everyone is excited for them, and it's so brilliant, and they're, like, running around, having adventures, dressed all fancy, and one of them's in a suit of armor. I love it because we need joyful LGBTQ children's books that normalize all these feelings. That's what Maiden and Princess does. And it's just so incredible and so needed. So good. It's such a, that, that series, Prince and Knight and Princess and Maiden, they're just like incredible. I love both of those books. And like, think of how validating that would have been for you as a child. Like when we are fed all of these hyper, hyper heteronormative storylines that just get regurgitated over and over and over because they're following the established formula laid out by these so-called classics. We're kind of losing something often. I mean, like, I acknowledge that part of the reason we are cheering when we read Princess and Maiden is because it's finally something to subvert this oppressively common story, this Cinderella story that we feel like we can't escape. So I actually agree, and I really like the fractured fairy tales. I think that they do a lot for breathing new life into them, but I actually don't think the title fractured fairy tale is right to me because it kind of implies that fairy tales are rigid and brittle and claustrophobic which I think you probably think a little bit (laughs) and breakable but they're really I don't I don't think they are I think they're anything but that they have always been fluid and amorphous and ready to change and grow with the next generation and era and fairy tales are more reflective of our society a snapshot of the moment in time they are written they're fluid and adaptable and we still are using them to indoctrinate our children with the current values whatever those values are it's just that they change fairy tales are a reflection of our humanity and the storylines that persist and adapt are the ones that resonate with us on a level that is always going to be valid and relatable and timelessness does not mean rigid on the contrary to whether time is about adaption but part of what i struggle with is that they actually have become a little more set in stone over the last 100 years or so because prior to them being written down they were this living breathing changing thing that was being told orally And as things like that go, they change with each retelling and with each storyteller. With publishing and like, you know, tiny things like reading and writing uh, becoming more mainstream and normal. And then now with movies and TV shows and more media being accessible on a global scale, there's 
so many fewer chances for these original stories to morph and change shape like they once did. Right. So these books, correct name for them or not, these modern fractured fairy tale books end up kind of being one-offs, like the books Reading Beauty or Interstellar Cinderella, both of which are absolutely fantastic books that you absolutely should have on your bookshelf. I love them. No questions asked. But anyway, books like them don't get the chance to dramatically change the entire societal narrative of a single fairy tale in society like, say, the Disney movie of Sleeping Beauty or Cinderella did. So I feel stuck as a parent because the value system of the common cultural fairy tales that we're all used to don't align with my personal value system. And so I don't want to teach them to my four-year-old. And I'm left wondering, what would we really be missing if we didn't introduce our kids to these fairy tales at all? What is the modern value of fairy tales? I don't really know. I do tell fairy tales, mostly orally and all the time. It is my go-to for like 9.30 p.m. when my kids can't sleep, but I'm falling asleep. So like the three little pigs is is my number one go-to on a loop because I can tell them coherently with half of me asleep. And at the end of the day, they're designed over hundreds of years to be memorable and easy to tell, like when you're half asleep. Otherwise, they would have disappeared. So I, th- I think there's something to them. I just I suppose what I struggle with most is wrestling with the feeling of whether or not we need to teach the antiquated versions of these stories in order to read the updated and more inclusive versions. Do we need to keep the older versions or can they just be lost with history? I have a difficult time feeling like we should continue to teach these when there are non-Eurocentric tales that could be a much better replacement, which Of course, we couldn't look at a global history in this short of an episode, but I'm left thinking about how massively other stories have been erased from history and not feeling compelled to feel, you know, these are, for lack of a better term, like worth it to take up my classroom time when I could cut to the chase and just use current ones that are more reflective of my values. Snaps to that, Corey. There's this extremely rich history of global storytelling that we're missing out on in my mind. When we stick to this rigid over and over regurgitation of these perverted and sanitized European fairy tales. And I get that I don't have nostalgia around this. I wasn't really exposed to a lot of fairy tales beyond Disney and the extremely simplified versions that are just kind of a part of the cultural experience of being an English speaking person in North America. I will say that the process of researching this episode was really eye-opening on many levels. And I'm definitely more interested as an adult human with critical thinking skills in finding out more about the original oral storytelling traditions that these stories came from and maybe reclaim some of those stories. Maybe just forget about this grim and Disney area that happened in between. And yeah, everyone is entitled to like what they like. I just want people to think critically about what some of the moral lessons that are in these stories are and what they're passing on to their kids. And with that, with all those complex and super layered and nuanced feelings, that is where (laughs) we're going to leave things today. Thank you for joining us today on the Picture Books to Gang podcast for this little sliver of a starting conversation about fairy tales. You can find the Picture Books to Gang podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to head over to our Instagram and let us know, what are you reading? (laughs) 